one. Hello, willkommen, bienvenue, konnichiwa. It's time for the Armist Inquisition yet again on Sunday the 13th of September, episode 149. I'm Armish Phil. I'm Armish Ben. And I'm Armish Matt. Okay, tonight's guest is Professor of Classics and Antiquity and Director of the Capital Archaeological Institute at George Washington University. He's also a prolific author with 20 books under his belt, including 1177 BC, the year civilization collapsed. Dr. Eric Klein, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. It's great to have you. Thank you for your time. <laughs> Happy to be here. We, um, we were just mentioning before how um, a lot of people might think, wow, 3,000, 3,200 years ago, what kind, what kind of relevance could that stuff happen to us, have for us today? Maybe you could... Um, Spell it out similar to the way you did in your YouTube, your famous YouTube presentation for us. <laughs> famous YouTube. <laughs> yeah, the, you know, the parallels to stuff that happened more than 3,000 years ago are a little too close for comfort these days. Um, you know, I would never have said a couple, 10, 20 years ago that, you know, there was anything way back then that was of interest more than kind of ancient history. But... Uh, bunch of civilizations all collapsed at about 1200 BC. Looks like it's a whole conglomeration of different reasons. It was a perfect storm, if you will. And if you look at those reasons back then, and then you look at what we've got today, there is um, an uncomfortable similarity, shall we say. And they went down, they collapsed, they disappeared. And so I'm wondering if the same's, uh, you know, in the future for us. Fingers crossed it's not. But ancient history may have some lessons to teach us here. I think uh, one of the things that surprised me about the book was the interconnectedness between all these sort of, like you call them like the G8, the big eight (laughs) societies back then. Yeah, that's actually, so this is my favourite time of antiquity, right? If I could be reincarnated backwards, I'd want to go then. Uh, and as I tell my audiences, I would probably be dead within, you know, one or two days. But um, <laughs> one of the things that attracts me is the interconnectedness, the, you know, the globalization for their time period. It's not like we're globalized today. But back then, if you were anywhere from, say, what is now Italy over to Afghanistan, and if you were anywhere from, say, what is today Turkey, down to Egypt. You had relationships with everybody. The the G8, as you said, are all in connection. These would be Mycenaeans and Minoans over in Greece and Crete. It would be the Hittites and Anatolia, modern-day Turkey. Be the Canaanites in the ancient Levant or ancient Canaan, which today would be Israel, Lebanon, Syria, Jordan. It would be the Uh, Assyrians and Babylonians in Mesopotamia, what is today Iraq. You've got Cypriots in Cyprus. You've got Egyptians in Egypt. There's, you know, seven, eight, or nine of these groups. You've also got the people over in uh, what is now Italy and the Western Mediterranean. And they're all either directly in contact with each other or at most they're one or two hops away. 
Like if you're a Mycenaean and you don't go over to Assyria that often, uh, you do trade with the Canaanites and they go over to Assyria. So it's, you know, just a couple of hops away. So there's been very few times in the history of the world where events were so interlinked and the, so, the civilizations were so interconnected. Them back then is one and us today is another. So I've always been kind of drawn to that period. Plus, they left writing. A lot of people don't realize this, but they left us a lot of writing. Uh, they've got the poems, the songs, the histories, the letters, the you know, whatever, uh, including all the correspondence between the kings. <laughs> and, you know, things, things don't change. All right, so kings are what kings are, and they, uh, they trade back and forth. They sign treaties. They marry each other's daughters to cement the treaties. They stiff each other like they try and <laughs> send silver claiming it's gold and then they get found out and so on and so forth. And we've also got other texts where like students are trying to learn. They're trying to learn. They're, they're, they're learning how to write this and that. One kid doesn't want to go to school. His father yells at him. Anyway, it sounds an awful lot like today. So I've been kind of always drawn to that period. And then to know that they collapse, that's always been a big mystery. I mean, Ever since my first year in college, I've been studying that, and it keeps coming back. Why did they collapse? They were doing so well. Everything was going so great. And then, boom, next day, you know, they're gone. Well, not quite the next day, but, you know, soon thereafter. So I've always been drawn to that period. Yeah, and, and would it be right in saying that part of the reason that they did collapse is because of their interconnectedness, like our modern world, and there was a bit of a domino effect? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I argue that, you know, it's kind of, uh, you could go either way on this, but I am leaning towards the interconnectedness. Of course, it's what helped them when things are going well, but I think it's also what hurt them when things weren't going well, for the simple reason that they, none of them, were self-sustaining. They all depended on each other. So, for instance, let's say, just hypothetically, you're a Mycenaean in mainland Greece. Right, your best friend's Agamemnon, Menelaus <laughs> lives down the road, you know, whatever. You're, you're there at about 1250 BC, give or take, uh, and you want to make something out of gold. Well, you don't have any gold. You've got to get it from Egypt. They control the gold because they're getting it from the mines down in Nubia and the Sudan. So what do you trade with it? Well, you've got silver in the mines outside of Lavrion. Egyptians, not so much with the silver. So you swap the gold for the silver. Let's say you want to make a weapon out of bronze. You need copper and you need tin. You've got neither in Greece, but you know the copper comes from Cyprus, and you can get tin from a couple of places. You could go all the way up to Cornwall, though that's unlikely. They probably did it, you know, everyone's in a blue moon. Um, you could get it from Anatolia, Turkey, but not so much. You're really going all the way over to Afghanistan, right? and we know that from the text. So they're trading for the raw materials. They're trading for food. They're also trading finished goods. So the upshot is, again, they're very much like us today. We're dependent on oil from various places. None of us today are, are self-sustaining, not really. And so in good times, everything's good. But in bad times, you know, wow. I mean, just look what, what happened right now with the pandemic. When it hit Wuhan, China, First thing that went were like iPhones and cars. 
because nobody was going to the factories in China, and then that hit Korea, and and then that hit us in the states, and all of a sudden, you know, nobody could buy an iPhone because of a pandemic that was over in Wuhan at that time. So same sort of thing: interconnected good, interconnected bad. You mentioned、um, Menelaus there and Agamemnon. <laughs> are you joking there? Or are we saying that you know the characters in Homer's epics may have some heroicity, if that's a word? <laughs> Historicity, absolutely. Well,、um, let's see. How do I walk this tightrope?、Um, <laughs> let's put it this way: If there wasn't somebody named Agamemnon or Menelaus, there was somebody. Very much like them, named Agamemnon and Menelaus. In other words, there is historicity at the basis of it.、Uh, I think you know you get a couple of classicists and ancient historians in a room. We'll we'll each have our own opinion,、yeah. but I think there's a kernel of truth.、Uh, it rings true to me. Not everything. I mean, for instance, I'm not so sure Helen actually existed, and if she did, I think she's an excuse for the war. I mean, the war. Again, if it's fought, the war—it's like the movie with Brad Pitt, right? You you may have seen it. You probably、yeah. wished you didn't see it, but there was a scene where Agamemnon said, "This war is not being fought for love. It's being fought for the same things all wars are, right? Greed and power and land and money." And and I stood up in theater and yelled, "Yes!" Because <laughs> <laughs> I really did. My students were very um, um, embarrassed. And they said, "Please sit down. Please sit down." I'm, I'm shouting at the screen, but Troy, which is probably Hisalic, right? It's on、uh, the way up to the Black Sea. It was a wealthy trading port. We know it's active in this time period, and we know it's on the periphery of both the Mycenaean Empire because it went from Greece over to the west coast of Anatolia, and on the periphery of the Hittites, who are in control of most of Anatolia. So it's a perfect spot to be fighting over. It makes perfect、yeah. um, sense to me, and it's the perfect time. If you think that the Trojan War is somewhere between 1250 and 1177, then it fits right into this time period of the collapse of absolutely everything. So, I mean, maybe in part that's why everything went downhill in Greece because everybody was over at Troy. But I, I say this not too glibly because. The archaeology at Troy, the nine different cities, show that two of them are destroyed: Troy 6H and Troy 7A. 6H is destroyed by an earthquake. 7A is destroyed by humans. There's arrowheads in the in the walls and bodies in the streets. They both fit into the proper time period. But for me, also, we've got the text from the Hittites.、And、the Hittites refer to Troy most likely, I'd say 99% for sure, as a city called Willusa. And they talk about no fewer than four wars that were fought with or over or by Willusa in the years from 1500 to 1200 BC. So, you know, for me, it's not a question of was there a Trojan War. It's more a question of which Trojan War is the one that Homer's talking about, and which city at Hisalic is the proper one. So, definitely something was going on there, and I think. The Homeric bards and then Homer himself、uh, probably remembered something that, you know, if you undo it, there's a kernel of truth at the basis of it. But you know, I can't point to Agamemnon or Menelaus or Helen, but 
people like them, I think, did similar things like that, if that makes sense. I mean, the analogy I, I often say is like King Arthur, right? You know, there's a little nugget of truth at the basis of that, but who knows if there were Knights of the Round Table or whatever. But there's a little something there, right? So I think the same thing for the Trojan War. And it's, it's, I, I believe that's quite a, a not re, maybe not recent, but I think if you went back 100 years or back to the Enlightenment, would most um, people have considered it a myth before the Troy yeah. was found? Absolutely, absolutely. You're quite right. Yeah, like when Heinrich Sleeman was running around 1850s, 1860s, 1870s, nobody, none of the scholars per se, none of the establishment thought the Trojan War had happened. They all thought, yeah, it was a myth or a legend. And he, who's (laughs) the man we love to hate, he was right for all the wrong reasons and wrong for all the right reasons. He found Troy, he found the Trojan War, he proved the experts wrong. Unfortunately, when he dug a Troy, he went right through the level he was looking for, and he threw out Priam's palace, or whoever's palace was the right time period. So he destroyed the very thing he was looking for. So, you know, we love him because he really started Bronze Age Mycenaean archaeology, but uh, wow, was he a bad excavator. Mm -hmm. One thing I've I've heard you say previously is that um, a lot of, the sort of general readership or, or lay people probably know a lot more about this period than um, they realize. Yes, I, I think I think that's true. I start out my lectures that way because a lot of people, when they come into the lecture, they're like, oh, late bronze age, I've never heard of this. I don't know who these people are. And so like in the, in the YouTube lecture, I start out asking how many people have heard of Hatshepsut? And a lot of people have heard of her. She's one of the most famous female pharaohs of Egypt, up there with, you know, Cleopatra. Um, and then um, Akhenaten, a lot of people have heard of him, the so-called heretic pharaoh, may have started monotheism. Uh, and then I have a little fun with the audience. where like, I'm going to go out on a limb here. Some of you have probably heard of this guy named King Tut. Am I right about that? And everybody's like, I've heard of King Tut. Yeah, yeah. So, and then Ramses II and... Um, our guy, Ramses Third, who's uh, the one who, who um, defeats the sea people. So I say, look, if you've heard of three of those five or six, then you already know the, the period that we're talking about. And if you've heard of the Trojan War and if you have heard of the Exodus account from, from the Bible, we're all right in that period. And I actually... I, I think I like to think that puts the audience at ease right away, that it's not going to be totally strange. I'm like, okay, you know, you knew more than you thought you did, uh, and and now you're going to learn a little bit more, and I'm going to show you why this is the coolest period around. Yeah, well, it instantly makes it more relatable, doesn't it? Once you can recognize a few names and yeah. you'll have some some visualizations while you're listening, it's... Um Definitely I think helps. so. I, I think so, because especially, and I know when you read the book, there's a lot of brand new names that are being thrown at you. You know, Tudhalias and Ashurbanipal and Chupiluliuma, um, <laughs> which I almost named one of my kids that, by the way. I thought that would be cool, right? Chupiluliuma Klein, be the only one in the in the school with that name. But my wife refused. I'm not sure why. <laughs> Anyway, with all those, you know, with all those names that are new to people, uh, I think it helps to have a few that are familiar so you don't feel totally lost or at sea. One of the things that I was keen to ask you when I was thinking about this in the week was about the Old Testament. 
And um, I'm not a religious person particularly. I'm very interested in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems to me that there's, there's a sort of um, a belittling of the Old Testament and, and people disregard it as myth or fairy tales or it's all allegory. And I wondered what your take on it, how you feel about the text as a, as a resource for historians and archaeologists. So that's a, it's an excellent question, and it's um, you're going to get a different answer from each person, of course. The way I look at it, and I actually explain this, I had a book came, come out back in 2007, I think, called From Eden to Exile, Unraveling Mysteries of the Bible. And it was a book that went with a series that I was a consultant for on National Geographic TV. Uh, and it was... Uh, these questions that I'm asked most frequently, where, you know, where's Noah's Ark? Where's the Ark of Covenant? <laughs> what happened to the 10 lost tribes? And, you know, these are things I'm asked at dinner parties all the time, yeah. as you might imagine. And so at the beginning of the book, I explained that what I do as an ancient historian, uh, what we all have to do as archaeologists and ancient historians, we have to kind of separate our personal beliefs and what we do professionally. And so, Regardless of what I think personally, professionally, I treat the text like I do any other ancient text. So as if I were reading an Egyptian text or Neo-Assyrian or something like that. And the way that I tend to work, the way I was always kind of trained is to be skeptical of anything. It doesn't matter what it is. I'll be skeptical until I have three different sources of evidence that corroborate it. So I'll give you one or a couple instances. Uh, the first millennium BC is early, is better for this than the second millennium. So when we're in the first millennium, we get text, for example, from the Neo-Assyrians that mention people like Ahab of Israel or a king of Judah. Uh, and you've got that as one source, which is what we would call extra biblical. It's outside the Bible. Then you've got the Old Testament or Hebrew Bible, which mentions the same people. And then you've got archaeology. So, for instance, there's a description where they uh, besiege, the Neo-Assyrians being they, besiege and capture Samaria, the capital of northern Israel. And that's been excavated, and you can see destruction levels there. So if you've got the biblical account saying the Neo-Assyrians are capturing it, You've got the Neo-Assyrians saying they're capturing it, and you've got archaeology showing that somebody destroyed it at about that time. That's good enough for me. I'm like, okay, that probably happened. So I tend to go, you know, item by item by item. Where you get into difficulties, though, is back in the second millennium before the collapse of everything or thereabouts. So, for instance, our friends the patriarchs, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, Uh, there's no evidence for them whatsoever outside of the Bible yet, right? Big yet. So did they exist? Probably. Do we have any proof? No, whatsoever. Same thing, Uh, and this is what gets me in trouble all the time, Exodus. Big account in the Bible, nothing anywhere else. Not mentioned in the Egyptian records, which is probably not surprising. Not mentioned in anybody else's records. And we haven't found them archaeologically. Now, 
that's where it gets tricky too, because there's a lot of claims you'll see like on TV where people have said they've found, you know, chariot wheels in the Red Sea and this, that, and the <laughs> other. So far, not so much. So, you know, the two two of the big things back in the second millennium, patriarchs and the Exodus, we're still looking for them. Yeah. Um, we had the same thing with David and Solomon also, right up until the early 90s, there was no evidence for David or Solomon either outside of the Bible. But then in 1992 and 1993, there was a broken inscription found at a site called Tel Dan up in North Israel. Uh, and it mentions Beit David. It mentions the house of David. It's from about 150 years later. It's from about 850 BC, and he lives at about 1,000. But, you know, if they're talking about a house of David, which means the dynastic house, there must have been a David. And if there was a David, there must have been a Solomon. We're yeah. still looking for anything that has to do with Solomon, including at Megiddo, which is a bit of a problem. But, um, you know, this is archaeology. Uh, you try finding one person from 3,000 years ago. <laughs> it's pretty hard. So, yeah. you know, so I'm, you know, and again, for all of my friends and colleagues, uh, and I've got people from all faiths that are excavating, we all have to put our personal beliefs on one side and then be professional on the other. Mm. So you get some interesting stories um, when you talk to them individually. But so, so that's it. So there's some confirmation, but um, perhaps not as much as, as some would wish there were. But, you know, stay tuned. Things could change tomorrow. I mean, the thing is with the, the Old Testament, and again, like you've mentioned about the texts like the Omana letters and the, and the text from, from your specialist period is that you've got to try and get yourself in the head of who wrote it and what their motives would be because just like, you know, they still had propaganda and, and uh, spin doctors back then, back then, didn't they? Yeah, absolutely. And you also have to remember, if we're talking about the Bible, they're not writing it to be a history book. Right. It's it's got totally different reasons it's written. And, you know, to go through it as if it's history. Again, you know, there are historical kernels, but someone like me and maybe I'm just a real skeptic. But like I say, if I can corroborate it with two other things, that's good. If I can't corroborate it, it's not that I disbelieve it. It's that I say you haven't proven it yet. So, yeah. So anyway, it makes things interesting. I think you'll agree with that. Keeps things interesting. Well, we love a mystery, don't we? <laughs> we do. Um, we do. That's that's actually why I was drawn to the collapse of the Bronze Age. That's that's one of history's greatest mysteries is why did it happen? You know, and I was told one thing in school, and now it turns out I think it's not completely different, but a lot of other factors that nobody told me about to begin with. So I was just going to say then, what was the original theory then that you just mentioned then? So... And again, this is where it gets kind of interesting. So you also have to realize that most of the scholars are compartmentalized. There are people that just do like Lake Bronze Age Greece, and there are people that do Bronze Age Canaan, and there are other people that do Mesopotamia, and other people that do the Hittites. And until, you know, reasonably recently, 10, 20 years ago, they didn't talk to each other. So you had a bunch of people saying, oh, this is why the Mycenaeans fell, and others saying, this is why the Hittites fell, and others saying, well, this is what happened to the Canaanites. And there weren't that many people that were looking at the big picture and going, wait a minute, yeah. So 
when I first started out, uh, it was a very glib explanation that the sea peoples did it. Uh, and these are people, it's not alphabetical. It's not the A people, the B people, and the C people. It's, it's the people coming across the sea. So yeah. there are uh, inscriptions that two Egyptian pharaohs have left us 30 years apart. Uh, we've got Merneptah in about 1207 B.C., and we've got Ramses III in 1177 B.C., hence the title of the book. And they both talk about groups of people coming and attacking Egypt. Now, they actually name the individual groups, the Ekwesh and the Teresh and the Shardan or Shardanu and the Shekelesh. Um, but there were a couple of Egyptologists in the 1800s who first translated some of these texts, and they lumped all the groups together and called them the Sea Peoples, right, in French originally, uh, because some of the names the Egyptians said, and they came from the sea, or they came from the islands, or they came from the north. Of course, most everybody for Egypt comes from the yeah. north. So we've been calling them the Sea Peoples since about 1850, but the Egyptians didn't call them that. So I was told that the Sea Peoples uh, brought everything to a crashing halt, that they're the ones that overran Mycenaean Greece and Hittite Anatolia and Cyprus and Canaan. And then eventually they attacked Egypt where they finally lost and they lost both times. Right. So the Egyptians, look, the Egyptians had plenty of time to prepare among other things, but all right. So they, so they beat them. So, um, but when I was taking courses at university, there were also things that I learned in my different courses. So, for instance, when I was in a course in Bronze Age Greece, they were saying, well, you know, various scholars have suggested it might have been a drought or it might have been um, invasion by other people or it might have been this or it might have been that. And I would kind of collect them, mostly because the professors like to ask questions on the exams about them. And so I would try it out. Well, it could be this and it could be this. And so-and-so says this. And, um and then uh, when you start studying like Hitt Hittite Anatolia or Canaan, there are other possible explanations. So all I did when, uh, when uh, Princeton asked me to write this book, and they said, will you write about the collapse? And I said, yeah, yeah, sure, I can write about the collapse, but I'd also like to write about what collapsed, uh, because I think more people need to know about Minoans and Mycenaeans and Hittites and all my favorite people. So when... I went through all of those civilizations in the middle chapters of the book. I introduced the Sea Peoples right at the beginning, and then I kind of leave them hanging, and I say, before we get to our, our actual explanation, we got to go back 300 years, so I'm going to drag you through three chapters, all right, or four chapters. And then when we finally get to it, I say, okay, here are the various things people have suggested. Uh, let's go through them one by one by one. So what's the evidence for earthquakes? What's the evidence for drought? What's the evidence for famine? What's the evidence for invaders? What's the evidence specifically for sea peoples? And now, which of these do we think it is? And spoiler alert, I decide, huh, it's all of them, right? So because there is evidence for all of these things, and to my mind, uh, each one is not enough to take down civilizations, let alone multiple civilizations, right? And so this is what I say in the YouTube lecture, which is a very useful um, synopsis of the whole book. 
and I basically say that if an earthquake hits you, lots of people are probably going to die, but it won't collapse your civilization. Same with drought, same with famine, same with invaders. But what if you have more than one? What if you have two or three or even four that come in rapid succession? Then eventually you're going to throw up your hands and say enough and, you know, turn over and die. Um, and especially if one of them turns out to be pretty major. So this is the thing I've been working on. I actually um, just not three, four hours ago sent back the corrected set of proofs for the updated version of 1177 because a lot of new material has come out in the six or seven years since the book first appeared. And it all, I'm happy to say, it all supports what I said. So I don't have to take back anything, but I can support it now uh, even more than I could. So there's some more texts now that say, for instance, at the city of Ugarit up in what is now North Syria, there are now texts that talk about famine in that city, which we didn't have before. And there's another text that said, enemy invaders have overrun the nearby port and they're about to threaten Ugarit. And soon thereafter, Ugarit is definitely destroyed by humans. There's arrows in the streets, bodies there, you know, just kind of like Troy. So there's new evidence for that, but there's also new evidence for the, as we call the mega drought, right? Droughts are one thing and a drought for a year or two or even 10 years is pretty bad. But when you get a drought that lasts 150 to 300 years with maybe a little bit in the middle, a little bit of respite for a couple of decades, but overall, you know, you try and live through a drought for 150 to 300 years, pretty hard. So what we're thinking is if you've got that mega drought, it's not that it's going to lead logically. It's definitely to a famine, definitely to invaders, definitely nothing definite about it, but it will impact absolutely everybody. And you have a drought that long. It means you don't have time to recover. So, you know, whatever, if you've got famine, if you've got invaders, if you've got earthquakes, the drought simply isn't allowing you to replant, to harvest. And so I think with that added in with even more evidence and the evidence that we've got now for, for this mega drought is from, all over the Mediterranean. There's evidence in Northern Italy now at about 1200. There's evidence in Egypt. There's evidence in uh, Anatolia, Turkey, Canaan, Cyprus, Greece, and even over in Mesopotamia. I mean, all all the way over like almost to Iran. You can see it in caves. You can see it at the bottom of lakes. I mean, we've got evidence now coming out everywhere. So um, I I do think it's a perfect storm, and I do think very rarely have so many things gone so wrong in so short a time period that it was just impossible. Um, That's not to say everybody totally died. I'm working right now on the sequel to the book called After 1177. 1178. (laughs) <laughs> or 1176 if you're going the other way okay. so um, and what, I, what I'm looking at is the resiliency what did it take to come back what do you and this is where I think it's also maybe appropriate for today let's say hypothetically that your civilization or your culture collapses how do you come back from that 
right? What, what's civilization 2.0, right? What's the rebirth? And it turns out that each of the areas reacted differently depending on how hard or not they had been hit. So Greece takes like three or 400 years to really come back, though it didn't go away as badly as we thought, but still pretty bad. The Assyrians, though, the Assyrians hang on in Mesopotamia for a couple of decades before they finally go down. But 200 years later, boom, they're back up and you get the Neo-Assyrian Empire across the ancient Near East. So I'm looking at resiliency would be the way to put it and how the different civilizations reacted or not. I mean, people like the Hittites didn't. They went away. They left some remnants in North Syria, but you get whole new groups in what is now Turkey. You get the Eurasians and, and other people. Mycenaeans and Minoans, they go away, right? Nobody calls themselves a Minoan today. So <laughs> it's interesting. And especially, again, looking at what's happening in 2020, I think that, unfortunately, that book may be more relevant than one might have thought a decade ago. So yeah. um, I'm trying to resist pulling in too many modern parallels, but I'm seeing them. So so we'll see. So long answer to your question, but <laughs> it wasn't as simple as the Sea Peoples did it. No, yeah. no. They were just part of it. And in fact, I think the Sea Peoples were as much the victims as they were the oppressors, right? They started moving. They started going. They, but they were refugees. So, and it looks like some turned violent, but not all of them, right? So for instance, the Philistine. Philistines are part of this group. Um, they're called the Peleset. They look like they settled down more peacefully than we would have thought and maybe intermarried uh, with the Canaanites because there's a couple of um, babies that uh, died immediately after childbirth that were buried under the floors of houses at the site of Ashkelon in um, what was then Canaan, today Israel. And those babies who were born... um, probably 80 years or so after the Sea Peoples came through, they're, they're like not quite 50-50, but they're almost half um, Philistine and half Canaanite. And their DNA, um, it's only four individuals, so I'm not going to put too much pressure on it, but um, they look like at least part of their parents, uh, let's say dad, is coming from either... Um, Sardinia, Sicily, Spain, that kind of area. And mom, maybe, is Canaanite, though maybe it's reversed. I don't know. And in any event, for these kids, it probably would have been the grandparents, not the parents. But I don't know if that means they settled down peacefully or if there was a little problem for the locals when the invaders came through. But at any rate, the um, offspring do seem to have mixed parentage. And that's a brand new, that's from July 2019. That's a brand new finding. But I've managed to slip it in to the revised version of 1177. So lots of new data in there. Just going back to the the drought you were talking about a few minutes ago, I wonder, has any work been done? You know, they can analyze like these uh, ice cores from Greenland, and that's how we know about things like the Roman warm period and the medieval warm period. Has anyone looked at this time period to see if there was a spike in temperature? Yeah, they've been looking at that. Um, Lots of scholarly arguments, as you might imagine. 
Yes, it's reflected. No, it's not. This, that, and the other. Uh, does the Hecla eruption, the Hecla volcano, does that have anything to do with it? Because you can see that in the ice cores. That's right. a little bit later. It's 1100 versus 1200 BC, but maybe. So, yeah, um, one of the things that I did look at for this re- revised version, which I didn't do in the original, um, I went into the question of, okay, if we've got a mega drought, then what caused it, right? What set it off? Um, And, well, we don't know for sure, but it does. There's a lot to do with um, ice flows and changing of temperatures and all of that. And events that happen every 1,400 or 1,500 years. So it is kind of interesting that – Rome fell 1,500 years after the late Bronze Age collapse, <laughs> and um, we're pretty close to 1,500 oh, years since Rome fell. So <laughs> not that I'm saying we should be worried or that history repeats itself, but, you know, Mark Twain did say that history rhymes. So, uh, yeah. Wow. Um, I just wanted to go back to um, the Exodus briefly, and I was wondering if um, you had any opinions on the exodus being linked to the end of the Hyksos period in Egypt? Good question. All right, so that is that is a suggestion that some have made, that it's a memory of the Hyksos being expelled from Egypt. Now, that's going to have happened back in about 1550 BC. Yeah. Um, if you follow the biblical chronology, the Exodus is supposed to have happened in about 1450 BC, so about 100 years later. A um, couple of problems there for me personally. Uh, first of all, 1450 BC is when Thutmosis III is the pharaoh of Egypt. And rather than letting people go from Egypt, he's busy conquering Canaan at that time. Right? He fights a major battle at Megiddo in 1479, uh, which he puts up on the walls of his temples down in Egypt. So I have a hard time thinking that the Exodus would be at 1450, um, which is why I prefer at 1250, which is a time of problems in Canaan and the archaeology fits. But let's say for argument's sake that it is 1550 and the uh, expulsion of the Hyksos. Yes, it could fit with that, um, it would mean that the biblical writers co-opted it and put it in kind of a different period, or at least used it to a certain extent, um, which I'm okay with. You know, that could happen. Um, what I have a larger problem with is if you have the Exodus back in like 1550, then where are your Israelites for the entire period of the late Bronze Age? Because that's the Amarna age. That's when you've got all these written texts. Now, some might say that we've got them because in the Amarna text, there are mentions of a group called the Habiru. And when, again, back, way back, way back when I was a youngster, still in diapers, well, not quite, uh, the, it was accepted that the Habiru were the Hebrews and that this was the you know, their name for them. It wasn't accepted by all people. It was a, a nice hypothesis. Um, and certainly the Habiru are around, but it was then determined that the Habiru was not a particular 
race of people or ethnicity or religion or anything. It was a class of people. It was kind of like the um, edge of society, the people that would, you know, like mug you in a dark alleyway, um, something like that. They were, you know, on the edges of society. And then when I got to university, I found that 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 hypothesis had been dismissed and nobody was accepting it anymore. And the Habiru were just part of, you know, Canaanite society, nothing to do with the Hebrews. If that's the case, then I'm back to square one with if you've got the Exodus at 1550, then where's your Israelites for a good 300, 400 years? I personally don't see them until around the time of the collapse and just afterward. From 1250 onward, by 1150, by 1100, certainly by 1000, cool, you got Israelites there. But that means putting the Exodus down later, and that means disconnecting it from the Hyksos. Now, of course, if you want to play around with things, you could have your your cake and eat it too. You could say, yeah, they're using the memory of the Hyksos expulsion, but then things don't happen until 1250. And, you know, you can cherry pick as much as you want. But for me, it's much easier. And I've actually suggested this. I had a couple of articles that came out, and I think I mentioned it in passing in 1177. I've got something I call the coattails hypothesis, which is that uh, in amidst all of this collapse and calamity, with the sea peoples coming down and the drought there and the famine, that the we know the Canaanite cities are destroyed, right? Hazor is destroyed. Megiddo is destroyed. Lachish is destroyed. Um, the question is, who did it? And I've suggested, and again, totally hypothetical, just throwing it out there against the wall, seeing if it sticks, that maybe the Canaanites destroyed these, sorry, not the Canaanites, maybe the Sea Peoples, destroyed the Canaanite cities, but it leaves a power vacuum. It leaves a power vacuum because the Canaanite cities are gone, and we know that the Egyptians removed their army. They withdrew from this area uh, around about 1200 BC. And so I'm thinking there's a power vacuum there. That is the perfect time for the Israelites to come on in and I personally, you know, unless you're talking real miracles, I don't think the Israelites could have taken on a city like Hatzor or a city like Megiddo or a city like Lachish. But what if it were already destroyed? What if it were already a smoking ruin? And the Israelites come on in and say, hey, thank you very much. We'll take it from here. right? And they take over. And then later when the account is written, they take the glory for themselves. Yeah, we did it. And they just, you know, don't mention the sea peoples. So the way I've put it is I think that maybe, maybe, maybe uh, the the Israelites and everything are riding on the coattails of mm. the sea peoples, taking advantage of the general collapse. So it's a possibility. I'm not saying it's right, but it's a possibility. And it also takes into account other people that have suggested if the exodus had taken place earlier, or if it was a process rather than an event, like what if the Exodus were groups of people leaving over 100 years or 200 years rather than, you know, in one fell swoop, they would have settled up in places like the highlands of Canaan. That's what Israel Finkelstein and others think. 
So if they're living up in the highlands of Canaan anyway, and then the lower part down by the Mediterranean gets destroyed and the Egyptians move out, then you've simply got the Israelites coming down from the hills and saying, again, we'll take it from here. So, you know, there's lots of various scenarios, and we just don't have enough evidence yet to know what actually happened. I mean, if, if that hypothesis is correct, then, then that underscores just how important this collapse was because our whole Western civilization is built on the foundation of the Judeo-Christian ethic, and without mm-hmm. these civilizations collapsing and making way for the Philistines and the Israelites to come forward, we'd be living yeah, in a completely absolutely. different world. Yeah. Yeah, 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 absolutely, completely correct. And I I make that, that point towards the end of 1177 that really it was terrible for them. I mean, oh, my God, the collapse, everybody dies. And, but it was great for us because out of, out of those ruins, when they rebooted, then you get, for example, you get the kingdoms of Israel and Judah in the land of Canaan, and you've got David and Solomon and everybody taking off. You've got monotheism. Uh, over in Greece, eventually, you're going to get democracy. And, yeah, it goes straight to really where we are today. Mm-hmm. So I said, you know, perhaps a little insensitively towards the end, um, sometimes it takes a wildfire to clear away the old growth in a, in a, in a forest and to allow new trees to emerge, you know. Um, I really don't want to say that these days with the wildfires in California and Oregon and Washington, but um, the idea was that uh, if they hadn't collapsed, we might not be who we are today. I mean, who knows? Um, But had we continued as Hittites and Mycenaeans, yeah, would we have the Judeo-Christian? Don't know. It's one of these wonderful what-ifs, right? What if they hadn't collapsed? And so I actually elaborated on that in the updated version of 1177. I said, I know it's hypothetical because they did collapse. But what if they hadn't? And, um, of course, there's no answer to that. But what I also ask is, and this is, I think, relevant for us today. I said, was there anybody at that time while they were collapsing who knew they were collapsing? And is there anybody running around saying, you know, like Chicken Little, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. Or, you know, one of the characters from the Trojan War, you know, oh, my God, don't do this, don't do that. So, and I think the answer is yes. Some people must have realized that they were collapsing. But did they know that it was like Mediterranean wide? I rather doubt that. And even if they had realized it, I don't think there was anything they could do about it. Right, They couldn't have reversed the drought back then. But that's where I think this holds lessons for us today, because if we see the same things that are happening today, droughts in part of the world, famines, earthquakes, invaders, wildfires, climate change, if we see those things happening and we realize what happened 3,200 years ago, then perhaps we shouldn't ignore this stuff today because now we do have the technology. Now we do have the know-how to reverse things. And my feeling always is if there's something going south and you have a way to fix it, it doesn't hurt to try and fix it. 
because if it was going bad, you fixed it. And if it wasn't going to lead to collapse, then what have you lost? So, yeah, so this is why I'm kind of like, go, 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 reverse things, stop climate change. It's, it can't hurt to try. So, and then every so often I'm like, remember the Mycenaeans. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Do you know, I think a lot of people today are stuck in this mindset that technology is sort of an, a linear progression. And it takes something like the Bronze Age collapse to remind people that, no, you can get set back. You know, there's a, yeah, you know people say, absolutely. well, getting yeah. sent back to the Stone Age, and it literally could happen. <laughs> and it literally did happen, right? Because after you had the collapse, they, we had, you know, what are called the Dark Ages, the first Dark Ages. You know, most people, oh, Dark Ages, that's medieval Europe. And no, we had another Dark Age after this, because whenever you have... Um, a systems collapse, which is what this is at, 30, at 1200 BC, the system collapses, your governments go down, the centralized economy goes down, people migrate, uh, and you lose, you lose things like knowing how to write. Mm-hmm. Suddenly in Greece, you know, only 1% could read and write back then anyway. And all of a sudden, when the 1% goes away and your, your palace economy goes away, yeah, you're set back anywhere from a couple of decades to a couple of centuries, right? You forget how to build big buildings, all that kind of thing. So they weren't quite set back to the Stone Age because they were able to transition to iron. Iron had been being used in, you know, bits and pieces, but it was not as easy to do iron metallurgy as it was to do bronze. So they hadn't been doing it yet. But then when the collapse comes, remember we were talking about self-sufficiency and needing tin and copper to make bronze. Well, if the roots to Afghanistan are cut and you can't get your tin anymore, it doesn't matter if you can get copper from Cyprus because you can't make your bronze. And then you've got to, you know, what do you do then? Well, old saying, necessity is the mother of invention. Well, you know, that's what they did. They turned to iron, which they had already known about, but they hadn't needed to do it. Well, now they needed to do it. It took them a little while, but as soon as they did figure out how to do it, they also realized that iron is better (laughs) for weapons and for tools, keeps a sharper edge, um, you know, better in warfare. So they made a transition to iron, but that's also where a lot of people that know a little bit make a mistake. They're like, oh, the sea peoples had the iron. They brought it. That's why they won. Like, no, 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 no. The sea peoples had bronze. And they didn't win because of iron. Iron comes a little bit later. But anyway, so that's why we call the next period the Iron Age. And that's where our friends like Hesiod, uh, the Greek poet, um, he actually, in, in, his, in, in his poem, uh, he says, oh, woe is me. I'm living in the age of iron, right? Everything is rust around me. I wish I had lived back in the age of gold or silver. So that's also like where we got our golden age. So, yeah, so they knew. They knew that things had come down, and it took them a while to get it back up. So the good news is almost everybody does recover, but not everybody. So, Again, cautionary tales from the Bronze Age. Who, who do you think was least effective? Would it least affected? Would it be the Egyptians, probably? Yeah, it actually was. I thought for a while it was least. It was the Egyptians and the Assyrians and Babylonians, 
because they're all on major rivers, ah, right? You've yeah. got the Nile in Egypt, and you've got the Tigris and Euphrates over in Mesopotamia. And so that makes a lot of sense. Um, but in the further research that I did over the last couple of years and I put into the revised version, Egypt gets hit also. Um, the Nile level drops. It looks like rain doesn't come down as frequently uh, down to the south and the highlands. Um, but it's not hurt as badly as the other places. Same thing in Mesopotamia. The Assyrians, I was, I was actually quite impressed with them. They keep going as if nothing happened for like 70, 80 years. And they're like, oh, no, 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 everything's good. Uh, still got our kings, still got our society, still got writing. And then, you know, long after everybody else, but still like around the year 1100, all of a sudden, bam, wham, and they get hit with plagues, pandemics, drought, famine, you name it. And it's just like the iron anvil comes down on them, and they're down for 200 years. They come back up in the ninth century. So I would say nobody came off wonderfully, but in the scheme of things, the Egyptians probably escaped best. But even they were never the same. I mean, the later uh, Ramses, uh, 19th, 20th, 21st dynasty. I mean, the 18th dynasty, that was the high point, right? 18th and into the 19th, that was the high point. Egypt was never really the same. They were always trying to get back to the way they had been. So, but yeah, I would say the people on the large rivers did not suffer as badly as the others, but even they got hit. And then presumably uh, Egypt w- would have been one of the strongest states of the the ancient G8 to start with, wouldn't they? Absolutely, yeah. Egyptians and Hittites were like the two big power mongers, absolutely. Yeah. But, you know, and, and keep in mind, the Egyptians beat the Sea Peoples both times. 1207 and 1177, nobody else had beaten them. It's a, you know, go Egyptians. But <laughs> it was it was like this pyrrhic victory because they were weakened at the same time. And poor Ramses Third, I feel badly for him because, you know, he wins against the Sea Peoples in 1177. And then like 20 years later, he gets assassinated in a harem conspiracy where one of the minor queens or princesses uh, has a boy and so assassinates the pharaoh because she wants her son to be king. Um, they're all caught. They're all put to death. But they actually um, did a CAT scan of Ramses III's mummy, and he has kind of a scarf or linen wrapped around his throat so you can't see it. But when you put it through the CAT scan, there's a slice right in his throat. A dagger went right in. And just, you know, cut everything. Probably died fairly instantly. And so we already knew from something called the Turin Papyrus, if I remember correctly, that there had been this assassination attempt and that some of the people had been put to death. We never knew whether it had been successful until they did this CAT scan and they saw the cut in the neck. And then they're like, oh, yeah, it was it was successful. Yeah. Yeah. He's dead. So, so, I mean, this guy, he saves the world from the Sea Peoples, and then he gets killed in a harem assassination conspiracy. Sounds like Game of Thrones. Not the way you want to go. (laughs) No, it just occurred to me then, I don't know if this makes any sense at all, but, you know, the the Roman sort of 
uh, myth of how they came about. A lot of the ancient Romans believed they were descended from Aeneas. From, from uh, yeah, yeah, I, I think, they do. Um, is no that, way to prove that or not. It, it sounds like that could be sort of an echo of this memory of a collapse that happened centuries before, and that's sort of made its way into their culture. It's possible. It's conceivable. You do have these kind of foundation myths in various civilizations. And yeah, they thought that when Aeneas was fleeing from Troy, that he eventually made his way over to what we know as Italy. And then his descendants are Romulus and Remus, who found Rome. So it's possible. Uh, DNA has been suggesting that the Etruscans, who are in Italy before the Romans, that they may have actually come from Anatolia, from Turkey, um, which is possible. And there are some myths, again, not enough evidence for that, but possible, possible that there are certainly, well, I would certainly, there are definitely migrations in the aftermath of the collapse, yes. Whether or not that then involves, you know, Aeneas, and going over to Italy and the foundations of Rome and all that. Yeah. Come on, Eric. Come on, Eric. It's such a romantic story. <laughs> it is. It is. If you want it, I'll give just, it to just you. say yeah. yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just, I'll say as I always do. There's no proof for it yet. <laughs> <laughs> do you know, one of the um, more specific things I wanted to ask you about, which I forgot to ask, the last archaeologist we talked about is about longevity in the ancient world because i've i've heard this it's often said like oh thousand years ago people would average life expectancy was 35 or 40 or 45 and i've often heard the argument made that this was because um infant mortality was so high and that if you got past the age of 12 you had the chance to live quite a long life what, what's what's your take on longevity in this period? Actually, pretty much exactly what you just said. That's pretty much what I've always heard, too. Yeah, if you managed to make it out of infancy and childhood, that you'd be pretty good to make it to eh, 35, 40, something like that. Um, if you made it to 60, you would be, you know, this revered elder, wise beyond <laughs> your years. But... Um, yeah, usually we, t- we throw around the numbers like average lifespan is about 35, but um, certainly not living anywhere near us today. You know, no 80s, no 90s, but 60s, well, probably top it out. If you offered me Ramses II, I'd probably take that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he's he's one of the ones, the exception that proves the rule. Exactly. That's, that's yeah, incredibly, incredibly rare, is it? Yeah, I would think so. But you've got like um, Pepe, I think it's Pepe II, back um, in the Old Kingdom period. Again, come to the throne really young and rule for a very long time. So, but, you know, if you have an average of 35, that means you've got quite a few that are dying before 35 and quite a few that are dying after. So, yeah. So, again, I would say if you made it to 35, you'd be good. If you made it to 50 or 60, you'd be doing really well. And I just personally, I would tend to doubt that that many people made it longer than that. But yeah, we do have some evidence for a couple like Ramses. So, do you think it's probably quite basic things like sanitation that that affected the longevity so so much compared to today? Yeah, I've actually thought about this 
a, a lot recently. I don't know why, maybe because I'm pushing that age. Um, there's a lot of things that could take you out. If you don't have modern medicine, if you don't have penicillin, if you don't have, you know, vaccines, you could get taken out at, by anything at any time. I mean, I was actually just looking at some of the early travelers to Mesopotamia. Um, some of the, the, the British travelers, for example, the French travelers. And so many of them, they get out to what is now Iraq, and then they die on the way back. You know, it was even just 100, 150 years ago, um, it wasn't a, a given that you would make it there and back. So, yeah, um, you could die of almost anything back then. <laughs> I mean, I think back to even just me when I've been on excavations, I've gotten just blood poisoning from infected cuts twice. I could see the streaks going up my arm. And if I hadn't gone in to get penicillin, I probably wouldn't be talking to you today. So you think about how, you know, the, it really is the miracle of modern medicine that's given us this ability to live so long. Back then, wow, I think chances were pretty good you'd be dead uh, faster than you could live longer. Let's put it that way. So yeah. the sheer number of things that could take you out is kind of overwhelming. Mm. Well, we're knocking up on time. What have you got coming up in the future, Eric? What's uh, what's there to look forward to? For us in general, for humanity, for <laughs> yeah. civilization? Just narrow it down to yourself. <laughs> <laughs> narrow it down to me. <laughs> we know the well, new word, uh, the revised version of 1177 is coming out. Is that the next big project? Uh, yeah. Yes and no. So let's see. I've also, I've got... A spinoff. I had a book come out a year or two ago called Three Stones Make a Wall, the story of archaeology. And there were um, in between the sections on Pompeii and Knossos and other places, there were digging deeper chapters that I was always asked, you know, how do you know where to dig? How hard is it to dig? How do you know how old something is? So we took those and we've spun them off into a little tiny book, ten dollars. Um, simply called Digging Deeper, How Archaeology Works. And I added in a chapter that I had to cut from three stones um, on things like uh, how do we know what they wore? How do we know what they ate? You know, things like that. So Utsi the Iceman and, and others. So that's the next one that comes out in November. So it's a spinoff, a little t- If you've got three stones, make a wall all but the new chapter will sound familiar. But if you don't have it and you're going to go on to dig, the idea is you put this in your back pocket and you read it before you go to dig. And then you come on and you're like, Oh, I'm an expert. I know how to do this. Yeah. Uh, so that's, that's one. The, um, the revised version of 1177 comes out in February. Um, but the next big project, project, project is this sequel, the after 1177 which I've been working on. I've got about 30,000 words written so far, but the deadline for that is not this December, but next December. Uh, So I think the publication date for that will be probably sometime in 2022, if we're all still around. (laughs) Amazing. And that's all I'm aiming for right now. (laughs) That's great. Well, unless you've anything to add, boys, I think... um... That's a good place to end. Yeah, no, that was yeah. fantastic. Yeah. yeah, thank you, Eric. For, for thank you on. so much for your time. Where's the best place to send people to find out more? 
in terms of, let's see, um, I've got a website, which is just ehkline.com. You can send them to Amazon. Uh, if they want to come digging with us, because we're going to go back and excavate next summer uh, at both Cabri, where we just found evidence for an earthquake 3,700 years ago. I mean, or 500 years before all this collapsed, there was other stuff going on. Anyway, we'll be back at Cabri and probably Hatsor. We think we're going to start a new dig at Hatsor, digging up the Bronze Age collapse there. Wow. And if the pandemic allows us, we'll be there next June and July. So if people want to get involved with that, just send me an email, just ehkline at gmail.com, and uh, I can send you the stuff. And fingers crossed we can get out into the field. This past summer we didn't go digging, and it was like my first time in 20, 30 years I haven't been excavating. Uh-huh. So that was that was tough not to be out there. But we got a lot written, a lot published, so that was good. But Anyway, so I welcome emails from people or whatever. Right, we'll, we'll put the links in all in the show notes for your website and uh, all your social media and everything. Um, speaking of social media, you won't believe this, Eric, but on Instagram, we have 1,176 followers. So <laughs> if, you get your, if you get your phone out, you could be 1,177 right now, which is pretty freaky. I think that's a bit freaky. I think it is. Hold on a moment. Let me open up my Instagram. <laughs> smells like a setup. He can't. It does. No, wait. I'm searching for... You can't fix it. Search for the Amish Inquisition. Wait, searching for Amish? What am I searching for? Search for the Amish Inquisition. Amish Inquisition. There you are. <laughs> You're not keep, well. I've got eleven seventy five, but oh. there we. I am now eleven seventy six, and so whoever joins next needs to take a screenshot and send it to all of us. Can you see that? That's it. Take a screenshot. Yeah. All right. <laughs> I love it. Amazing. And you can't write that. You can't fix no, that's that. Amazing. That's just it. Right. You know, what's even, speaking of that, what's even stranger, I went on Amazon the other day yeah. and there were 1177 reviews of the book. <laughs> <laughs> and somebody, somebody had a sense of humor. Somebody was selling a used copy for, you guessed it, $11.77. So, oh, that's sweet. Send me a, a screenshot. I'll send it out on my Twitter and my Facebook. <laughs> right, that's, that's fantastic. I'll do that. I'll save it now. Boom, it's gone. Right. Mm. Thanks very much. Just hold on the line one minute while we play ourselves out, Eric. Thanks Absolutely. so much again once more for your time. It's been fascinating. We love it. And uh, mm-hmm. we'll be back in a second. Take care. I'll hold on. Right, we're back. <laughs> the dwarf, the cripple, and the mother of madness. Uh, everything's under control. Situation normal. That was our chat with the uh, legend that is Eric Klein. Yeah. And Phil's, Phil's calmed down now. Actually, serious fanboy. Oh, his heart slows. Heart's beating, yeah. Mm. Oh, quite a bit of anxiety going into that podcast. But you handled it well. It's not, uh, yeah. You worry about meeting your heroes sometimes. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it was and great. It always helps when they're nice, doesn't it? Yeah, it always helps when they're nice people. 
Yeah, superb. Really enjoyed that episode. I'm sure you, Eve Droppers, will have learned something, hopefully. And yeah. uh, this this period of history, that's often overlooked. You know, people focus on the classical period, the Romans and the ancient Greeks and all that, and uh, a lot of people don't know about the Bronze Age collapse, and it's well worth reading about. So I'd highly recommend Eric's book, and I uh, look forward to the, the revised version coming out next, early next year. That'll be on top of my birthday list in February. So, shall we move on? Should we do some housekeeping? Why not? Housekeeping! Housekeeping! Housekeeping. Okay. What do we need? We need iTunes reviews. Yes. Any iTunes reviews this week, Amish Matt? Well, we do, do we do straight to the reviews, not yes. the messages. Oh, we usually do reviews first, but well, well, what's the message? We've got some messages. We've got some messages. We've got a message, yeah, from A to Lula Tate. Okay. And she just, and she says, I assume it's a she, you know, I'm going to take that liberty. Yeah. Um, I just listened to my first episode of the Amish Inquisition, and you guys are the crack. I can't what? stop laughing. Keep up the hilarity. Two chinking glasses. Of beer. Wow. Crack. Is that crack spelt C R A I C? No, it's crack spelt like the drug. I was wondering if it was maybe one of our new Irish listeners because we broke the top 20 this week in philosophy in Ireland. 17, wasn't it? Exactly. It's a new high for us in the Emerald Isles. So thanks for listening. She unfortunately is gone back to the beginning. Another one of them lunatics. Yes, and when she messaged, (laughs) um, she was on rocket surgery, sausages, and quantum files. Was the episode she was on? Quantum flies. Flies. Sorry. Yeah. Wow. So what was that like? Episode three or something? I don't know. I I don't even. I don't like to look. You've got to admire the admire the commitment and going back to episode one, haven't you? Mm, Yeah, absolutely. Hell's bells. I feel sorry for you. Yeah, what a journey she's about to embark on. <laughs> Actually, though, I I listened back to episode one, quite a lot of episode one, and I thought I sounded quite good in it. Quite surprised. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite a humble brag. <laughs> just a just a brag, I would say. I was just you know, just telling the world about what I'd learned about uh, <laughs> the Russian Revolution. Oh like, uh, yeah, the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks. Mm, the Bolsheviks and some someone else. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. What's um? So uh, you went straight to messages. What about reviews? Well, you're not getting right, reviews right, out. Okay. Uh, I, I presume uh, we got some reviews. Yeah. Hang on. I'll be with you in a moment. Oh dear, I tell you. Um. Right. So we've got two reviews on Podcast Addict. Um. Oh. The first one is from Creature One Four Five. <laughs> <laughs> you have to this, do it in a voice if it's called Creature 145 I just what do it in my normal voice review, you? Um, I'll leave the voices to you excellent podcast excellent <laughs> podcast <laughs> love the guests and the guys always provide fun breakdowns of the news also love the jungles <laughs> jingles <laughs> the jungles I think jingles I love the jungles <laughs> Yeah. Now, excellent. Got 
That's not the only review. We've got two reviews. Okay. So the second review is also five stars. Obviously. And that's from Night Ninja. And he's, or I'm assuming that agenda again, they say, they say. Yeah, Night Ginger. Night Ginger is uh, sexually, genderly um, ambivalent. So to say they. Okay, that's what I'm saying, they. <laughs> he here um, found this show a few weeks ago via Instagram, and I love it. Oh, mm. I love it. Cross between JRE, Joe, Joe Rogan experience. Yeah, Higfney. I'm what? going to the pub with your mates. Yeah. First time I heard the housekeeping, I was in tears. <laughs> we'll be going back through the old episodes between new releases. Wakanda Forever. Wakanda Forever. Oh, Night Ninja. Wow. Forever. Yeah. Night Ninja, that's a reference to PJ Masks. It is, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. So uh, maybe a fellow parent child (laughs) (laughs) fellow balding middle-aged man with nothing better to do we don't listen to talk about my balding on the podcast (laughs) (laughs) excellent two great reviews i enjoyed them yeah yeah Um, yeah so did i people need to subscribe to the youtube yeah um because you know there might be something happening next week What's happening next week on oh, YouTube? We'll have to discuss post oh. postpartum. Oh, oh yeah, <laughs> we've um, we have got some new YouTube subscribers. Believe it or not, wow, the that's all, a, all that is all. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, subscribe to YouTube. Um, send us stuff, news articles, media clips, messages. We don't bite. We're very friendly. You can contact us. Mm. Um. What's the number one way to become a producer? Just give, us, give us some fucking money, man. Toss us a Just, coin, bitches. Toss us a Any coin, currency. bitches. Toss a coin to your witcher. Your bitches. Oh, valley of plenty. Oh, valley of plenty. I'm a blind man. Yes. Monetary donations. Go to the How to Become a Producer tab on the website. You'll find the PayPal button there. Send yeah. us your cold hard cash. If you found this valuable, return some value. Instead of going to Costa yeah. and spending five quid on a fucking mocha chock, a whipper, fucking frapper, whatever, you know, drop it our way. Yeah, I donated £2.50 the other week. Oh, thanks. You're, you are so <laughs> amazing in your love. They are. Yeah. So <laughs> amazing in oh, their love. Oh, my God. Love. Um, oh Christ! Fucking hell! Oh. Ha- correction inbound. We didn't lie. <laughs> didn't lie on purpose. It's come to our attention that Jamie Carter. <laughs> was not an Olympic athlete. He corrected Who, us. Who's Jamie Carr? Oh, right. okay. Our, produ- our producer, an Olympic f- athlete. Our producer from last week. Our producer from last week. producer. Our producer Jamie from Carter. last week. He was um, an entered apprentice in Freemasonry, mm-hmm. and I stated he was an Olympic athlete. Is a he was is an ex GBR gymnast. What does that mean then? Great big ring. 
<laughs> I don't know. GBR, I, I must have seen GBR and thought it meant he, like Team GB. Mean, does that mean he's in and around being an Olympian, but he just... Just missed out. Just missed out. Yeah. Is that what it means? It sounds like it. Right into us, Jamie. Is that your name, Jamie? Yeah. Okay, right into us, Jamie. And he'll be a producer next week again. Mm. Maybe you'll be an executive producer then. Ooh, we have to donate to get that. All oh, right, sorry. Yeah. Uh, we should need to uh, give a shout out to the boys at Conspiracy Normal, Adam and Sophiel, because the Strange Realities Conference is nearing 25th of September through to the 27th. The Strange Realities Conference. Go to strangerealitiesconference.com. And go, they've got loads of great speakers talking about occult stuff and UFOs and all that weird shit. Love it. If you're into that shit, go. Sign up. You might be hear, hearing from them very soon. Oh. Um, Cryptic. <coughs> what else do we need to do? Is that all the housekeeping done? We need to, oh, fuck, we need to thank the producers, don't we? Yeah. Oh, so producers for episode 149 are Gav Scott, Tallulah Tate, Night Ninja, Creature 145, <laughs> um, Diogenes of Synop. Ooh. Another another producer from beyond the grave. Wow. He's been dead two and a half thousand years. Diogenes. Uh, yeah, the mob is the mother of tyrants, he famously said. Oh, right. Sort of foreshadowing Polybius's theory of anacyclosis. Uh, Jamie Carter and Tambarista2020 for services to Instagram. They're nice. our producers, so thank you. It really means so much to us, doesn't it? It means so much. It does. I might cry now. They are. Yeah. So amazing in their love. <laughs> I'm a blind man. You're wrong and you're a grotesquely ugly freak. I've been coming to terms with the fact that I am gay. You're a lion dog faced pony soldier. You're and terminating. Mr. Peter Bone! I'm oh. the carrot was my penis. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, I think that's all the housekeeping done. Well done. Oh, we okay. got through it. Mm. Well, you know what that means it's time for, don't you? The Great Mask Debate. Oh, God. New mix, new mix inbound. Oh. COVID-19 News. This morning, as COVID cases mount across the country, the mass debate is intensifying. People are very passionate on both sides of the great mass debate. The partisan mass debate is heating up. Mass debate's glowing. The president is trying to have us cover the mass debate. CBS, Target, and Walgreens are getting in on the mass debate. More lives this year than any other year for the past hundred years. What it is? The magic vaccine. A judgment day and terminating mode. Nice. You know, it's just, you know, super painful. I kind of, I kind of, uh, <laughs> been the ending, but you know. It's hard doing it on the fly. Christ, I'm not Adam Curry. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, COVID news. Um, crikey. Yeah, there was a, a bit of a setback from the AstraZeneca vaccine this week, wasn't there? Yeah, did someone experience yeah. extreme pain? <laughs> <laughs> super pain. I heard someone got ill 
I don't know. I've not looked at the details. We're very busy this week. We're very busy week. You know, it's just, you know, super painful. <laughs> um, yeah, the Oxford uh, vaccines had a setback. Let's hear about it. Australia's hit a major stumbling block tonight in our path out of the coronavirus pandemic. The Oxford University vaccine trial has been suspended after a participant suffered a serious adverse reaction. The world is desperate to put its confidence in a COVID vaccine, but a health scare has temporarily derailed the best hope to end the pandemic. Human trials reportedly temporarily on hold tonight after a reported serious reaction in one of the volunteers. A volunteer in the trial by Oxford University and drug company AstraZeneca has got sick. That person um, suffered uh, what would we be termed um, a serious event uh, that requires um, further investigation. The patient was in the United Kingdom undergoing a phase three trial where the vaccine is tested on up to 50,000 people. It's understood the volunteer was diagnosed with a condition called transverse myelitis, which causes inflammation of the spinal cord and can lead to loss of strength, back pain, bladder and bowel problems. It's worst case paralysis. Um, it uh, can be um, temporary or it can have lasting effects. With many thousands of people getting the vaccine, medical events can happen that are nothing to do with the vaccine. Paul? <coughs> yeah. Mm. Transverse myelitis. How do you prove? It's, it's a neurological condition. Uh, mm. it's, it talks about swelling of the spine or something or whatever. Um, a third recover. A third recover partially and a third don't recover. And the third that recover partially recover with significant neurological defects, uh, deficits. So that's, um, it's back on though. It came yeah. out today that they've they've restarted. Yeah, I think I read that. But it's, it, I wonder how they determine the correlation, whether it was the vaccine or it was just something else that caused it. So someone got a chirping a live cat. Yeah, some oh chirping. yeah, sorry. <laughs> uh, the thing is, this condition has been linked to vaccines before. Oh, so right, okay. It, it was linked to the rabies vaccine in like the twenties or thirties. Really? Yeah, but they've obviously seen uh, fit to keep on going. I mean, yeah, the thing is, it's just a, a vacuum of information. They can't tell us anything about the patient because of medical confidentiality. They can't tell mm. us how serious it is, whether the vaccine caused it. We mm. don't, we, there's just a vacuum of information, which is a concerning thing for me. I think there's a lot of, yeah, the issue is, is, is the amount of pressure, isn't it? I think that they, they are under from a multiple, well, the world, yeah, basically to get a, a vaccine out there. We've got Trump coming out saying we're going to have one by the end of the year. Yeah, but he was told off for that, wasn't he, I think? Yeah. Is he not? Well, the, the Russians already have one. Yeah, but, you know, they're just doing what they want, don't they? Yeah. I don't know. Uh, I mean, the thing is, right, it's got to be... I've got I've to have absolute confidence in it that it's safe if I'm going to give it to my kids. Mm. And... The problem, or maybe not the problem, depends how you look on it, is the chances of my kids getting seriously ill or dying from COVID are really minuscule. Yeah. So so the chances of getting ill from the vaccine have to be below that. 
to even contemplate having it. Yeah, it's like flu. Only certain people get a flu vaccine. I think it'll go the same way with, with this. You, there won't be a mass vaccination drive for every single living person. Have do you not listen do you not listen to your own podcast? <laughs> Bill Bill Gates said we we won't go back to normal until essentially the entire population's been vaccinated. No, he's wrong. And he's a doctor. He was wrong when he said a computer would only ever need eight kilobits of, of memory. But he's wrong now. <laughs> yeah, so a bit of a setback, but it is back on. So, you know, who knows? Who knows what the next twist in that thing will be? Um, well, the thing is, is, we don't know how many people that it says it's stage three, so it's up to 50,000 people. Are, are 50, have 50,000 people been injected with this vaccine? Yeah, I'd, I'd heard 18,000. Pardon? I'd heard 18,000 in this country. But are they, are they doing it in multiple countries with the same vaccine or something? Um, America, Brazil, a couple of other places in South America, I think. But the same... Yeah, the AstraZeneca, yeah. Right. Mm. To make it up to 50. Mm. So that's one person reported out of 50,000. Yeah. Which may or may not be a correlate of the vaccine. No, we don't know. That's what I mean, so, you know. But again, I would say your chances of getting seriously ill from COVID are less than 1 in 50,000. Well, they were... Well, we spoke about this, didn't we, last week? We Depending didn't actually put it on here. According to Tim Harford, it was, in the UK at that time, was 1 in 2 million to die. Right. And 44 in a million to contract COVID in the UK. The thing is, is that the risk factor is different for each individual. Yeah, yeah so that's the average, isn't it? My priority average. is kids first, then yeah. then me and the wife, and then everyone. Well, I was l- listening. You're very quiet, Phil. Can only just hear you. Said you. This, you said this last week, and it's fine yeah, on the roadcaster. I'm the guest. Yeah, what's that about? I'm going to turn you up. Um, but I was listening to something else, um, and it, uh, I was on the radio again, and it was another another science, a so-called scientist, mm. um, and um, he'd uh, said that I think it was every six years or every seven years, the um, chance of getting seriously ill from COVID doubles, basically. But what? you know. Every seven years, the chance of getting ill doubles. Seriously ill, I think, is How's the way he's termed it. Or dying, maybe. Uh, why is that? figure that out? Oh, Watch you it. mean seven years of age? Yeah. Yes, right. Yeah, I'd, I'd heard it was a similar corollary, corollary or whatever, however you say it, I'd heard is that it essentially adds 10 years of life expectancy on you. So if you're 18 you have the life expectancy of a 28-year-old. If you're 90, then you have the life expectancy of a 100-year-old. So that's why it's hitting older people so much harder. <clears throat> but it, we're so much, we're still in our infancy and understanding how all this works, aren't we? It'll mm. all, hopefully yeah. it'll all come out in the wash. I would like to move on because um, Carol Sikora, Professor Carol Sikora, who's a leading oncologist, was on trigonometry this week. Uh, and he was talking about the impacts on cancer care to start with, uh, seeing as that's his field, and particularly the delay in screening. Check this out. 
The other problem for the NHS, which is peculiar to this country, is that it's undercapacitized anyway for diagnostic tests. So in France, if you need a CT scan because you've got a cough or coughed up a bit of blood, you'll get it by next week. It'll all be sorted out by next week. Here, you may take three months. And that's normally, that was 2019 before all this happened. And so now, because of the huge backlog, if you have cancer but don't know it, it's going to take longer to diagnose. And the danger in that is it gives cancer the opportunity to spread. And whilst we're very good at treating localized cancer in the four main organs, but anywhere else you have it, we're not so good if the disease starts spreading. The outcome, the prognosis goes down and the treatment gets more difficult, more arduous for the patient. So chemotherapy, radiotherapy, immunotherapy, all these things which we can do, but the prognosis is much worse if the cancer spreads out of the primary organ. And so that's the impact of this. Five published papers in the UK looking at trying to quantitate that impact. And they vary from 20,000 excess deaths because of the delay to 50,000 excess deaths already. And that's the, the worrying feature. And we're still not back to normal. Uh, again, the, the, our health minister said we were nearly back to normal. I would dispute that. If there are 15 million people waiting for it, this is not normal. Even 15 million. Yes. Fifteen million people waiting for a cancer screen. Fifteen million. A fifteen of the population. million. Yes, that's what he said. Fifteen million. Are you sure that's just waiting for <laughs> on the waiting list for a screen? So mammogram, whatever. Fifteen oh, okay. million. Yeah. Okay, now. But you've got, to you've got to remember, a lot of these are routine. So prostate cancer is something, once you're over 50, you get it every year. I think. Yeah, every year. I think it's every year, yeah. Um, there'll be certain... I don't like the mammogram. It's, it must be like you smear tests and then... S smear tests, again, mammogram. that's... I don't yeah. I can't remember how often that is. Every few years, yeah. I guess, I think, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, but if you think maybe there could be maybe 20 million women in the age categories to get a smear test... That's well, yeah, every yeah, five yeah, years. That's sense now, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. So that's what he's talking about, and um, yeah, that's worrying. Twenty, you know, if everything went back to normal tomorrow, there's still a worst case scenario of fifty thousand excess cancer deaths. This isn't strokes, heart disease, depression, mental health, suicides, all the rest of it. This is just cancer. Yeah, no, yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? I'm starting so, to think uh, we've fucking really fucked up here. Yeah, I mean, how many people? What's the death total at now for COVID? Forty summit died with COVID, not yeah, of with COVID. COVID. With COVID, yeah. So mm. I'm really it's looking concerned. a bit shaky, really, isn't it? At the moment, if you look at that, and you're not even looking at heart disease and stuff, are we? No, no, this is just oncology. I've got two more <laughs> clips. Um, the next clip, he goes. Um, is it the next clip? Uh, he goes on to describe how screening has been affected in like pr in a practical sense. So the example is mammography, for example, is pretty much back to normal. It's not an invasive thing, a, mm. a mammogram. That's that's patriarchy for you, by the way. <laughs> Mammograms right. are easier to do than um, prostate exams. So right. the, the, pros <laughs> the prostate exam waiting list is getting bigger. The mammograms are back to normal. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll go to uh, Carol too. At the other end, you've got 
endoscopy, which involves putting a tube down in the mouth or into the back passage, but down into the mouth, people are going to cough and splutter. It generates aerosol. You've got to wear full protective clothing for the operator. You've got to clean everything between each patient, disinfect the whole place. So instead of doing 10 endoscopies a morning, for example, which would be the average endoscopy list, you're down to three or four a morning. So, and yet you've got a backlog for, for, for four or five months backlog. So it's very difficult, the slow pace. What's the solution? Well, you just have to work harder, work longer, and do what it takes and, uh, and change the processes, you know, industry, a pub, let's change the way it works. It wants the revenue. Um, you know, I'm a little bit, uh, and uh, the public, private, private sector is much more efficient going to change. Public sector has the luxury of time and the luxury of, well, there's no incentive to do anything. We can discuss the problem, set up a committee, do a working party, write a few papers, a piece of work in the paper in the NHS. It's not actually doing anything. And uh, once you've got that, uh, you know, what you need, you, it's difficult to get rid of the backlog. Plus, I didn't see that come in. Yeah, it's a bit laid into the, the the public sector. It's true, though. Nothing gets done without a white paper and a green paper, does it? It reminds. It, sorry, go on. It's not well. It's not agile. You know, no public sector thing is an agile unless it's just axed. Giant, you know? giant centralized bureaucracies aren't good at thinking on their feet, are they? No. no, and I think the other thing as well is that this points to. The NHS, anyway, was like, in, when compared to other health services, runs very efficiently and runs hot, which means, you know, kind of at almost peak capacity all the time. Yeah. Um, so, you know, when you, this kind of thing happens and you have to slow stuff down, you're just fucked, basically. You're just <laughs> fucked. It reminds me of similar comments that online chemistry tutor made about state <coughs> schools and how the, some state schools he felt were sort of uh, putting words into his mouth to say they were letting the students down, but it was the private schools who were sort of more willing to innovate and get mm-hmm. things done and deliver no matter what because if they don't, they don't earn any money. They don't get paid. There is, yeah, there's that. That's one side of looking at it, isn't it? The counter-argument is that if you step out of line with the government or the local authority in as a public school, if that's the right way of saying it, um, then you, you, you potentially get in trouble. That's yeah. the thing. A lot of, well, I've found when I've worked in the NHS, it's all very... <clears throat> stratified like the management levels and you don't do anything without someone say so mm. basically you can't think and say right we're just going to do this basically yeah he raised it he raises an interesting point i've got one last clip for him um and i really didn't see this coming oh. he, he's asked about the origins of the virus oh god <laughs> i was a bit surprised by his answer all the symptoms. There was a case in France in December. Yeah, wasn't there? And there were the cases in France. There's even cases in November in at a shooting party in Worcestershire. Believe it or not, really, in Worcester, Wiltshire, Wiltshire. Yeah, and uh, uh, there were three cases out of six 
people that stayed in a, a big country house and the, they've proven positive. I mean, how it all arose and how it spread, the most likely scenario, it arose in Wuhan somehow, whether it was... Do you have any unorthodox thoughts on the origins of the virus? <laughs> the, the, yeah, you mean it was an escape from the laboratory? That, yeah. yeah. It was a weaponized virus. It was a research program to weaponize the virus. It escaped probably accidentally because viruses do escape. People break the safety rules, mm. don't wear gloves or don't wear whatever you need to wear. And uh, the virus got out. And then, it, you know, I like to think it's it's a luxury virus. It went straight down the airport road to the first class lounge, <laughs> and then went fully first class around the world, all its little friends, all yeah. its little viruses said goodbye with their little suitcases and went off. Uh, you, you, you two laughed at me the other week when I said it was a chimera, an experiment that got loose. Yeah, I think he was joking then, wasn't he? No. Nope. Yes, he was. He was joking. I let the eavesdroppers be the bug, but uh, be the um, be the bug, be the uh, judge. But that's how he thinks it came about. It was a experimental virus that got loose. But it's not killing anyone. <laughs> no, I mean the point is to study it to learn how to um, treat it. You, know, you create different viruses, learn, study them, learn how they work. Okay. How can we effectively treat something such as this? Oh, it's gone. It's gone out the window. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I guess don't know. we'll find out. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, this, we talked about this, didn't we, about um, people having it possibly earlier than when it, it, oh, yeah. we all got locked down. Yeah, November, he says, in this country. Yeah, and I've, I've read something recently about someone dying from it in December and it, finding it somehow. And they've, re- they've started retesting blood tests, haven't they? Yeah, From yeah. People the- going back months, and I think December was the one that I'd heard was the last one that they died fa- with they it. found it in sewage samples in December mm. in France and the UK. So, mm. who knows? Anyway, we'll move on to Carol. Because, uh, move on from Carol to Alan Sugar. Oh. Alan Sugar was on this morning this week and oh, no. I didn't think I would say this but I kind of agree with him on some things <laughs> you, me- you mentioned that uh, you mentioned that you were unaware of the, of the news this morning and so I've, I've, uh, I've, I've got it for you uh, this is from the Sky News website coronavirus latest news live I'm afraid it's coming the World Health Organization warns the UK as the Prime Minister plans changes to restrictions. So the World Health Authority have said we're afraid the second wave is coming. Excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. I'm sick and tired of watching CNN, CNN, Sky, Bloomberg, BBC, the lot. Because all they do is cause panic amongst people. I'm not interested in any of this stuff because you can switch the television on any time of day and the first thing you see is some more bad news. I'm not interested, quite frankly. I'm focusing on myself, focusing on my family, focusing on making sure that we do and my staff and my people do the right thing in order to remain safe. Yeah. I'm with him on that. I've, I've totally disconnected from the mainstream news now, pretty much. Yeah, I don't listen to it anymore. But was he speaking from his yacht from the middle of the Mediterranean there? No, he was speaking <laughs> from, from Dan Landon. Because the whole point of him being on is he was promoting his last apprentice as a baker and they were opening a new bakery shop in London. Oh, right. That's why he was on. 
Right, okay. So, um, I don't know. Next clip is asked about getting people back to work. Yeah, and you believe that actually the government needs to lead by example, actually, on this getting everyone back to work. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you go down Whitehall, uh, it's like uh, it's like, like a ghost town. And that's because all the civil servants they only need they only need half an excuse not to go to work. Uh, we're paying for them, by the way. Uh, and I think, I mean, the banks are really annoying. I mean, they're telling people don't come back to work to January. And you know why? Because they're all giving them computers, taking them home, and they're all working from home, and they're all doing the same amount of business as they are doing. And they're starting to realise, hold on a minute, what do I need 50,000 square feet of offices for in the centre of London? It's actually, we're paying away money for no reason at all. Uh, and they're starting to use the pandemic as an excuse for making mass redundancies. I thought how it, how's he jumped to the redundancies there? Because mm. of saving money by having yeah. not having people in the offices. Well, I imagine they're having to pay rent yeah. at the moment, aren't they? Actually, still. You kind of think of the staff, like the people who work in the canteen at the office. You've got the vending machine guy who comes and fixes the guy who fills the water cooler. You've got your mm. IT guy who fixes your computer in the office. There's a whole network around running an office and all these people are going to be no no longer needed well yeah if you put it that way then yeah UPI (sighs) but yeah I don't know it's got a good point I think I think it's got a good point on it yeah there is that I mean the other thing is is that's capitalism isn't it you know if you figure out you know it is isn't it and that's what he does you're telling me that he, if he figured this out, he, at the goodness out of his heart, he would keep a massive office going to keep people in employment. If he could save himself a million quid a year or whatever, I, as a businessman. I, 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 that's the one thing that I don't understand. Is I, I'm pretty sure that all the banks and all these major companies knew that they could save money by closing their offices and sending everyone to work from home. I think there's a so, certain level of prestige, isn't there, by having an office at Canary Wharf. What I'm saying so is I think, I think there must be reasons why they didn't do it earlier. Um, I think feasibility, because everyone's, I think, prices, everyone's been warned that the internet wouldn't handle it, would they? Ah, uh, that maybe was putting them off, yeah. Maybe that was putting them off. I think that's what it is, and now they've figured out, well... But I don't know, I mean, I've quite liked working from home yeah yeah me too it's easier I don't spend as much money having to drive depends on the job uh, some yes, people you, you can't work from home <laughs> well no but I mean some people who do work from home who are, who have started working from home in the lockdown don't like it no yeah yeah. they feel uh, tied to the desk and they can't escape and uh, for some reason they need to learn to like it it's the future yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Right, go on. I was just going to say, put the telly on while she's working. Yeah. yeah. Last clip follows on from the theme of getting back to work, and it kind of makes a good point on this as well. The thing about getting back to work is this, is that um, when you're in the workplace, you don't realise during the course of a day 
how many questions and answers that go on. People ask simple questions, you know, like, where's the blue file? Where's the blue file, you fucking cunt? <laughs> uh, has so-and-so paid his money yet? Has, so- has so-and-so delivered the goods yet? Has so-and-so delivered the goods yet? You don't realise the interaction <laughs> between people yeah. that goes on. Social interaction. Think about the young yeah. people also. Yeah. Um, let's, uh, let's just think finish for the, the last, last 30 seconds on, uh, on, on Karina because it is her day. Karina? Karina. I think he's got a good point there about the sort of micro interactions that happen within an office that you will lose. Can you just take the blue file home with you and <laughs> put it on a desk where you can see it? I, <laughs> I've got two two ways of viewing what you just said there. I think there's I think there's a lot of unnecessary questions that get asked in an office from my I think it's a lot of people seeking reassurance. Like, oh, would you do this? Are they not um, in regards to a blue file? Regards to blue, is this the correct blue file? <laughs> um, whereas, from I would say, from a mental health point of view, I think it's important to have that kind of social interaction and yeah. that reassurance that you get from an office. Yeah, but you know, it must be really hard to brown nose working from home. Mm. Yeah, imagine what you have to do. Only even fans. Be- even easier um, being a social loafer, though. What's one of them? It's like someone who pretends to be busy but isn't. Right. Never had never come across those when you work in life? Oh, so you talk to oh, I'm so busy. But they actually right. don't really do anything. Right. It's just like bluffing, is it? Yeah. All right, okay. All right, I've... Um, I've got one last clip on COVID and I got this from No Agenda and it's from C-SPAN which is a bit like the Parliament Channel in the States. Oh yeah, I've heard of that. Uh, C-SPAN, yeah. And they have phone-ins as well. And this might be one of the world's greatest phone-ins to C-SPAN. You both disappeared. All right, we'll hear from Josephine in Livingston, New Jersey on our Biden line. Good morning. Morning. Um, it is very, very sad that this country has come to the point. It's you against me, just like the woman you heard from California. My God, do we really live in America? This idolatry to Lucifer. That's how I label Trump. I have to say it. This idolatry to Lucifer. And even the white evangelical church who proclaims himself pro-life. They're not pro-life. They're pro-birth. Now they're saying, go die, like this Dr. Atlas that Trump has just hired, who believes in this idea of herd mentality. To get to that herd mentality, <laughs> two million people have to die. <laughs> herd mentality? you not heard of the, okay. the, the herd mentality strategy? <laughs> Was she just, was she, I didn't understand what she was saying for large parts. Was she just making things up? Oh, well, Trump, it's idolatry to Lucifer. We've got to get, you know, I don't believe in herd mentality. Two, two million people have to die. <laughs> to get to that, to that level of herd mentality. <laughs> it's outrageous. Anyway, I thought it was worth sharing with people who don't <laughs> listen to no agenda. It's less than 1% of the population. Yeah. All right, let's move on 
Joe Biden's been back in the news this week. He dropped a doozy this week. Have you heard this one? Why in God's name don't we teach history in history classes? A black man invented the light bulb, not a white guy named Edison. Okay? This is this is said in a speech in Kenosha <coughs> where that shooting was. And he went for the photo op and met the family and then later on in the day did a press conference and said that. Just, you know, just throw it out there. Did a did a black guy invent the light bulb? Is that the is that what happened? No. It's Edison, wasn't it? Edison, yeah. Not a white well, guy called Edison, but it was, yeah. Is Ed- it not? Um, Edison, Edison patented it. Patent, patented yeah, it? Yeah, but he had a... He had this, the, the famous story is he had a patent workshop, wasn't it? And he basically had right. people coming up with inventions for him. So Edison had the, the first light bulb, which I think had a paper filament. And then uh, the black man Joe Biden's talking about is Louis Latimer. And right. he worked for Edison... And he innovated, said, uh, and he invented the um, carbon filament. Right. So it's like an innovation. And then that, you know, that was a bit better. And then eventually someone else in Anderson's workshop came up with the tungsten light, tungsten filament, which is the one that lasted for for ages. So, yeah, right. it's, it's historically illiterate, but... <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I don't know who's feeding. He's, not, he's obviously not coming up with that himself. It's just so divisive to do it at your speech in Kenosha. It's yeah, that's stoking, what I mean. stoking this shit, man. Mm. Um, moving on from Joe to his 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 presidential rival, the Orange Man, the incumbent. <laughs> um, something. Did you hear about the Orange Man's um, prophetic book quote from twenty years ago? Oh no! Let's hear it. BuzzFeed dug up an old quote from Donald Trump talking about a large-scale terror attack 19 months before 9-11. In his 2000 book, The America We Deserve, Trump wrote, I really am convinced we're in danger of the sort of terrorist attacks that will make the bombing of the 1993 Trade Center look like little kids playing with firecrackers. Trump also mentioned the mastermind of the attack, writing, quote, One day, we're told that a shadowy figure with no fixed address named Osama bin Laden is public enemy number one, and U.S. jet fighters lay waste to his camp in Afghanistan. He escapes back under some rock, and a few news cycles later, it's on to a new enemy, and a new crisis. Wait, 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 wait. Mm -hmm. Okay, hold on a second. Mm -hmm. Is this really Trump before 9-11? Have you read this? It's 2000 in his book. Are we making that? Did you make this up, Mika? Nick. (laughs) I did. Did you make this up? Nick, tell us it's over, right? Will you stop? Mika, stop. I think it's over. What's what's the rage here? Will you stop picking on him? I think it's cute. Really quickly, though. I mean, so, Willie, that was... 2000. 2000. In a book he wrote in the year 2000. Yeah. Well, it was published in 2000. He could have written in 1999 for all Exactly. He might have but been, been more precious. So he it. predicted, basically predicted the attacks from Osama bin Laden. Sign him up. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's weird, isn't it? Yeah, what's that all about? The fact that he named him and then mentioned Afghanistan. Yeah, yeah but who was the ghostwriter? A good question, yeah. So you know, he didn't. He didn't say any of that. 
Who's the ghostwriter? Like fucking David oh, Ike. No. <laughs> Sorry, David Ike. Did he go? Yeah. <laughs> Although, I suppose he's he's very much a New Yorker, isn't he? So you probably know a lot about the 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 first World Trade Center bombing. Yeah. Terrorist attack, wasn't he? So I don't know. Maybe it was Osama, wasn't it? He did it the first time. Was, no. Was it? No. Was it not? No. Not the ninety-three bombing. No. Was it not? All right. Wasn't linked to it at all. Didn't fund it. Not as far as I know. Maybe. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. Um... Okay. Right. Fin- well, you know. Do some, finish off on something a bit lighter. I don't know what time um, it is. I can't even see what time it is. Eight minutes past ten. Okay. What's lighter than a light bulb? Sorry? Sorry, Ben. Your mouth's away from your microphone again. lighter than a light bulb. Oh, shit. (laughs) Sorry. The cat's just gone nuts. (laughs) Just, you know, stop ruining the podcast. (laughs) Uh, School's back, so you know what that means. Holly and Phil are back on this morning. Oh. And even better, Gino's back. Oh, no. Yeah. And he was running a little late. Can you guess why? No. Hello, everybody. <laughs> Buongiorno. Oh, it's so nice you. to see you. So great to see you. I'm sorry. There was traffic. I woke up 20 past seven this morning. I'm sure you did. I was busy last week to do a family fortune. Ah. Yeah, so yeah. Last night it was, you know, husband we, uh, and wife night. So we're going to wait. 2.30 in the morning we finished. And it was, I know, I know. Wow, I know. wow, okay. Sorry, I'm late. I was bugging my wife since uh, 2.30 morning. <laughs> Gino Di Campo, famously arrested for uh, <laughs> burglarizing Gordon Ramsay's house. <laughs> I think, God, I think really. Allegedly, <laughs> I just googled that picture. <laughs> I think I smell a correction next week. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's true. It reminds me of uh, that Matt Allwright problem, rogue, uh, problem program, Rogue Traders, and his mate Dan on the motorcycle. Didn't he get done for something? Oh, yeah, fraud. Yeah, he got done for fraud, didn't he? Yeah, I don't know. You don't have to, we don't have to do a live correction. I'm doing it. Yeah, he's an animal. Gino's an animal. 2.30 in the Paul, morning. Oh, no, not. He <laughs> 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 wasn't fucking Gordon Ramsay's Paul Young. <laughs> The singer? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Back in 1998, <laughs> a 21-year-old Gino DiCampo broke into 80s singer <laughs> Paul Young's home. I thought you meant Paul Young broke into Gordon Ramsay's home. No. <laughs> <laughs> but it looks, on that picture, <clears throat> Paul Young looks a little bit like Gordon Ramsay. Yeah. Oh, you wow. that? Oh. Is that chef's whites. <laughs> yeah, it looks like it. it's oh, a bit blurred, isn't it? Yeah, that's that's just unseeable. Well, it's one more step to normality getting Gino back on this morning. That's the way I see it. Yeah. Yeah. We had some sad news this week. Dame Diana Rigg passed away. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yes, she was was quite funny in Games Games of Thrones. Game of Thrones. I can assure you, our alliance with House Tyrell remains... Do you expect the alliance to continue after you've thrown our future into prison? As I said, I didn't imprison anyone. As for your veiled threats. What veil? What veil? Fucking badass. Yeah. 
they were all um, rubbish fighters, though, weren't they? The house Tyrell. So there are always lessons in failures. Yes, you must be very wise by now. Oh, butt slam! Yeah, butt slam to Jamie Lannister. One of my favourite characters in the whole series. She was very good, wasn't she? In that, yeah. Queen of Thorns and Bronn. You know, a yeah. couple of the it was the it was the extended cast that made the program really. Yes, yeah, Bron was very good, wasn't he? <laughs> Give me ten gunmen and some climbing spikes. Did oh. he survive? Spoiler alert! He did, didn't he? Master of coin. Yeah, Is that he what does. he was in the end? Finished off master of coin, didn't he? Oh, I don't know. All right, one more highlight from the Queen of Thorns. I'd hate to die like your son. Clawing at my neck, foam and bile spilling from my mouth, eyes blood red, skin purple. Must have been horrible for you as a king's guard, as a father. It was horrible enough for me. A shocking scene. Not at all what I intended. You see... I'd never seen the poison work before. Tell Cersei. I wanted to know it was me. Fucking evil. Yeah. Do you know, at its height, it was the best, probably one of the best things that ever touched the TV screens. If it touched the class. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, sadly missed, Diana Rick. That's a shame. Yeah. Um, before we go, I wanted mm. to um, just give a, a shout out to last week's guest. Can anyone remember who it was? <laughs> <laughs> Fucking hell, Pad. Pad for me. Um, What's uh... <laughs> how How tricky is it to use that roadcaster, Phil? It's hard work after a few uh, funny cigarettes and the odd uh, glass of port. I was a bit concerned about our last our guest last week, Andrew Satchkin. <laughs> Shatkin. <laughs> sorry, Andrew. Andy. Sorry, Andy. Andy Shatkin. Yeah, I was a bit concerned. I think you're hitting hitting the point, Phil. That. Uh, <laughs> 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 He's not creature one four five, is he? He <laughs> could be creature. One four five. Did, you, did you go back and purposely look for that whilst because I told you about this? Yeah, first laughing. Yeah, yeah. I did. It's one well, of those things that I like to do. So. You did not notice that whilst we were recording. I almost lost it. <laughs> You're so mean. A, a slight deflation. Play, play it again for me. I think you're hitting, hitting the point, Phil, that... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. He's a homophobe and he's a misogynist. Not Andrew Shatkin. Not Andrew Shatkin. That's uh, the uh, Australian guy. <laughs> okay, well, unless you've got something to add. Oh, no. You're a lion dog-faced pony soldier. Shall we um, 
Should we go? Oh, fuck. Yeah. Till next week. Come on, who are you then? Ronnie Pickering. Who? Ronnie Pickering. <laughs> who? Ronnie Pickering. Who the fuck's that? <laughs> yeah, me. <laughs> Oh, it's time to go. Thanks for listening to another podcast adventure. We're going to be back next week for episode 150. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be it's going to be fucking great. Can't wait. What else, what else are we going to have? Get over here! Get over here next week. Episode um, 69. Execute order 69, dudes! Oh! Oh my! <laughs> I imagine the carrot was my penis. <laughs> uh, if there's anyone out there that can do the real Chewbacca sound, I might marry you. <laughs> hurt the Bible, hurt God. <laughs> the dwarf, the cripple, and the mother of madness. <laughs> do it. Feces. This is the chopper. I'm just hitting random bun- buttons now. Oh, it's a mess. Abort, abort. Come on, man. I can't have children with a whore. If you want to make a phone call, go for it. I don't mind. Bring it on.